Yes, hello and welcome back to the 6Ps podcast. Fantastic to have your company once again for episode H of series 2. And for the first time this year, we're moving away from Alfred Hitchcock's rear window and we're focusing on the creative task at hand. And we're going to primarily be focusing on Joan London's The Golden Age as we look at the creative sack. It's been great to get your feedback over the past couple of days regarding our bonus episode from last week, which was the Jim and Tim show. Uh, Lots of positivity, particularly surrounding the performance of Tim. In fact, we had uh, a number of questions from our listeners, um, so hoping to get uh, Tim back on board so he can uh, look into things like uh, aliens, uh, conspiracy theories, and even his uh, time in the energy and trading world. If you would like to get in contact, though, about anything really, you can do so via email. The email address is 6pspodcast at gmail.com. That's 6pspodcast at gmail.com. Before we get into our creative sack, we're going to go to our first break and our first song with the theme today being autumn or autumnal music. Songs that remind us of autumn because it is that uh, three months of the year where we can use that word autumnal. We'll be right back on the other side of this with more 6P's podcast. And we're going to look at this creative sack, which is worth 30 marks. That means it's worth the same amount of marks as the text response sack. With that, though, of course, the creative sack is not on your exam, whereas a text response essay is. But if you wish, you can write a text response essay on the text you're focusing on for the creative. But obviously, in class, you won't need to write 
any text essays on that, which is why we suggest to most students that they stick, in our case, to read Window rather than the Golden Age, but the option is always there for you. Looking at the rubric, there's four key criteria to look at, and it's split up into three, which look at your actual writing, and the last one, which looks at your statement of intention. So the first one looks at your understanding of the text, uh, primarily the key moments, characters, and themes. And as you look at the rubric, you'll find that that middle band asks for a satisfactory understanding, while the very high end, we're looking for a sophisticated and complex understanding. So with that, we are looking to to see you showcase a knowledge of the key characters and the key themes within your particular creative response. The second criterion revolves around the writing style that you use, and this is why we suggest that you mimic uh, Joan London's style. Uh, Obviously, it depends on what text you're doing. So some schools I know do Persepolis, some do Rear Window. In that case, you can write things like monologues and speeches, and to a lesser extent, probably letters and diary entries, which are a little bit less sophisticated. But with the Golden Age, we definitely want to see you writing your own vignette or chapter. And if you look at the criteria, again, the rubric, it's that middle band asks for a clear development of voice with appropriate consideration to the original text, whereas the very high end, we're really looking for a sustained development of voice and style and an insightful consideration of the original text. The final criteria for the actual creative response um, comes down to your fluency of your writing and that middle band asks for a generally fluent and coherent written piece whereas the very high end, we're looking for a highly expressive, fluent, and coherent piece. So three of those four, or the three I just mentioned, all revolve around your actual creative piece. The last criterion relates to your statement of intention, or sorry, I should say your written explanation. The statement of intention will come up in your oral presentation, but you do get this written explanation, which is worth 25% of the marks, so 7.5% of the marks uh, are based on this. And with that, we're looking for you to justify um, your piece. So why have you written it, the purpose of it, and how it fits into the text, and a little bit as well about the stylistic features that you took on. And we'll discuss this a little bit later on, but looking at the criteria, and again, the middle band is asking for sound justification, whereas the very high band, we're looking for insightful justification. So that sort of brings us um, to the actual writing of, this creative response and when we've looked at this in the past we've really looked at students who are able to mimic Joan London's style um, and particularly through the use of a vignette. What that means is it's a short sort of chapter or a short moment in the text that you want to expand upon or add to the text and again that's probably really important to think about. I often uh, get students to think about a particular character from the text and explore them in a little bit more detail. So characters that students have done in the past particularly have been Sullivan, uh, Julia, Margaret, uh, Albert and Anne Lee, who are both residents of the Golden Age who have their own chapter towards the end of the text. These are characters who we only get a brief glimpse on and you can be creative in expanding and adding to their story bit either through a flashback, say, for example, their onset story, or something that happens to them, say, Sullivan in his iron lung, or perhaps even um, Albert and his journey away from the Golden Age. The the characters that are more, um, or we get more insights into are obviously the protagonist, which is Frank, uh, Elsa, and then we have Ida, Maya, and I guess Sister Olive Penny, 
as well. And these are characters that have been developed throughout Jane London's text. But again, you might want to add something to that or transform something from the text, um, which adds to that. With that, it's really important, I think, if you are going to pick a character from the text, and again, you don't have to, you can pick your own or you know create your own character that fits into this world. But if you are going to be uh, selecting one of these characters, my advice is to create a character profile. What that entails is looking at every single uh, event or moment within the text where that character is present uh, and get a really strong idea about who this character is, what their values and beliefs are, and part of... Um, and I guess a sense of their emotions as well, because that's really what we're trying to encapsulate here within our creative response is those emotions and feelings that our characters feel. So once you've done that and you've picked a particular moment and you've picked a character and you've built your profile, it's really important now that you write a piece um, that's very similar to Joan London, mimicking her style. And we've got those three levels of text features that we know of. Um, these text features that appear throughout the whole text that appear in chapters and paragraphs and those that appear in sentences and words. So when it comes to the whole text features, we really are focusing on um, a piece that's not really plot-driven. So what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean by that is that this story is more about capturing moments within these characters' lives and primarily actually their emotions. So rather than this being a story, and it is to an extent a story about Frank overcoming polio, and it is a little bit of a story about Ida and Maya acclimatizing to Australia, and it is about Elsa and Frank's relationship, there's only moments. We don't get the full story here. We only get moments and from different characters' perspectives. The first piece of advice I'd give to you is to write in close third person. So that means that you are telling a story from a particular character's point of view, but not using first person, using their name or the pronouns he and she. And you'll notice that Joan London sometimes does change perspectives within a chapter as well. So look at how she does that. Quite often it's by starting a new paragraph and providing that character's name very early on. The other things that occur throughout the whole text are these symbols and motifs. And the ones we look at um, quite consistently are things like light, uh, birds, music, uh, the netting factory is also there as well. And these are symbols that Joan London uses throughout the text that add more meaning for the characters. When it comes to writing your chapter or vignette, look at how London begins and ends all of her vignettes and chapters and build, I guess, a little bit again of a profile about how she does that. For me though, the opening paragraph or two for each chapter really builds an atmosphere and provides the audience with a clear idea of the setting and the character's position or feeling within that setting. And again, we're looking at these moments, so make sure you build an atmosphere early on. Where is a character? Look at that sensory language. What are they feeling, thinking? Um, All those senses really need to come out at some stage. And just remember too, when it comes to a lot of these characters, what they're physically feeling, it's not just um, neck and above, I always think. Um, Think about the whole body as well, particularly for those characters who are suffering from polio. With that as well, make sure within your vignette it is just one moment. If you are going to um, jump in between time, my advice is to use a flashback rather than flash forward. That way, you again, you're mimicking Joan London's style and getting a character to reflect on a moment from the past. The other thing that's been mentioned is the fact that there are two periods of time here, 
and there are different tenses for that. So the past simple tense is used to describe life in the 1950s and the verbs end in ed. It's past simple tense. The world before the 1950s, and we're looking here again at World War II uh, primarily, we have an auxiliary verb before the past tense. Quite often it's had. And again, this is often used for flashbacks. When it comes to your sentences, make sure you vary up your length just as London does. We use short sentences for emphasis and for impact, and we use longer sentences to add in minute detail. It also helps in terms of the fluency as well, but particularly you'll find that long sentences are used to describe a character's emotion or to describe the setting. And again, commas are used to ensure that the clauses within your sentence uh, work properly. Quite often as well, London will start with a preposition or an adverb in time. This is um, prevalent particularly early on in the chapter. The last piece of advice I'd give to you to mimic London style was to look at similes. Again, look at the similes that Joan London uses. They're very much to the time of the 1950s. So please make sure when you are running your own similes, and my advice to you here would be really to think about um, what was going on at that particular time, what um, was common or prevalent, prevalent within the society, and use these to form your similes. You're obviously not going to talk about a souped-up Subaru. We're going to leave it there for now. When we come back after the next song, we're going to read through some sample pieces and get an idea about what works really well when writing a creative piece for the golden age. We'll be right back on the Six Piece Podcast after this. I could bet all of the riches that I ever had Rushing the night like a shark, babe, would it be bad? If I had to sit the line for the thrills that are run up my back You must die, nothing else can leave me off track Welcome back to the Six Piece Podcast, and we're going to get stuck in and read um, a couple of paragraphs from three different creative pieces or sample pieces, and I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs just to give you a taste of what to expect. The first one is called Opal Tears, and it's about Sullivan. Floating across the floor, Nurse Elizabeth pushed Sullivan, turning his shell gracefully into the room of children. The impression of the grave object caused many of the innocents in there to look unforgettably puzzled in an unknowingly judgmental stare. Vibrating in a harsh rumble, the shell was a Pandora's box, bringing thoughts of fear to it if the body was open and exposed and all, as its power to make broken lungs breathe in air once more whistled through the distant corridors. The room was filled with its presence, 
gaining more attention than the head that lay like meat on a platter outside of it. Frank stared, unafraid. The boy was not a threat, despite being trapped in a gross machine that controlled controlled the very life that lay within it. Eyes met from afar. Both boys smiled. Their current shared situation is what brought them to each other. It was their different life experiences that allowed them to grow and learn together. Neither of them had liked the IDB. Polio had made their life dull enough. This place made it worse. The IDB was surrounded by a veranda which was as long as the place itself, reaching right around the corners of the building. The grass from the garden was overgrown, hugging the edge of the wooden boards. The veranda became a place of refuge for the sick children who wanted a moment of escape. Frank sat with his back toward the window. He could only focus on the birds flying elegantly over the garden, reminding him of the freedom children on the other side of the veranda have. Frank's tea was steaming next to him. The nurses insisted he have it. He had to do what he was told. Sullivan could not see the same beauty in the garden. His mind was too used to staring at the ceiling. It made an imprint on his now-tainted vision. The steam from your tea is too close, Sullivan exclaimed in his usual blunt manner. Wouldn't it clear your lungs? No, said Sullivan. I came outside for air, not thick steam. Why aren't you in your iron lung? It's not mine. I borrow it. Good thing you can have a break from it then. Breaks aren't a choice. The nurse tells me what to do. They're too busy to know that I'm suffocating out here anyway. And we'll leave it there. So again, this is a really nice piece because firstly it opens again by building that atmosphere. We have that really vivid description of the iron lung and a couple of similes as well to describe it. We also have a change in perspective from Sullivan to Frank and that's done through the use of paragraphs and the other thing which I didn't mention before was the use of dialogue which again comes up throughout the text and make sure your formatting is similar to that of Joan London. Every time a new character speaks you start a new line and more often than not the word said is used by Joan London. The second piece is called Boys in the Boat and it's about a character called Sully, who is not the actual Sullivan from the text. But this is a really well-written piece about rowing and the head of the river race. And it begins. Sully was lying on the banks of the Swan River, the sun hot against his eyelids. He had taken a moment for himself, lying under the shade of an oak tree, squeezing his eyes shut. He was not asleep. He knew he had no chance of such luxury, but he had to convince others of his repose if he had any chance of convincing himself. It was the day of the head of the river, the most prestigious race of the year. Up and down the banks, races were preparing themselves in their own ways. Every boy there had suffered, mentally and physically, in their pursuit of perfection, an athletic martyrdom that allowed them to be there. His eyes opened. He felt rather than saw the boats being rigged, the young men stretching, the wind in the trees. Lying on his patch of grass, he was an island, a single anchored point in the sea of activity. In the distance, the bell tower chimed ten. He sat up, unsurprised, and made his way, walking along the bank through the rabble, towards the boat that, at that moment in time, 
was the epicenter of his world. As he neared it, he noticed the rest of the crew appearing out of the crowds, each making their way, as he was, from their own islands of solitude. He made eye contact with Nick Bradshaw, but did not nod and did not smile. The camaraderie of the bond between them needed no acknowledgement. It was stronger than friendship, sometimes independent of it. As they arrived at the boat, each boy in turn began preparing it, bolting on shoes, checking riggers, an autonomous checklist through which the boys laughed and joked. This was the moment he longed for. Not the finish line, not the podium, it was the carefree chatter they all indulged in just before a race. He knew each boy in the boat intimately as a mother knows her son. He knew their bodies, their minds and their flaws. He had seen them struggle and seen them thrive. He remembered a notable scene when Henry Pollock had been using one of those new indoor rowers. He had pushed himself so hard that he had passed out. The boys had stopped to free his feet and sit him up, but when he came around, he was pissed. No one had recorded his time. There was no doubt that each of them was there for the finish line to win. Now all that passion, all that ache had been condensed into one common goal, go fast. The energy in the air at that moment could power all of Perth's industry for a day. So once again, we have that clear visual setting described early on in that piece. This as well, through this piece, we also see the student has a really strong knowledge of rowing by using a jargon that relates to rowing. So they've clearly done their research. They've also done their research regarding the head of the river race and the schools. So even doing that little bit of research, which schools in Perth in the 1950s were strong at rowing? Where were they rowing? It was obviously the Swan River. Um, and that little, those little bits of minute detail that show that the student has gone above and beyond to research not just the text, but the world of the text as well, which is oh so important. The last thing I'll mention about this piece, I mean, you only did read the first part here, but the thing I like about this piece is, again, that moment is described in such great detail. It is just some some kids preparing for a boat race, but they managed to um, really go through um, vividly every single tiny moment of that, or every single tiny event in that moment. The last piece we're going to read today is called Familiar Routine, and it's about Frank and his life in New York, and it begins. The morning light seeped through the large bay window, soaking Frank's soft translucent face, his wake-up call. The sun painted soft pastel yellows and oranges over the canvas of white walls surrounding him. Fighting the rigidity in his muscles, Frank tried to find his footing as he climbed out of bed. His muscles tensed as he reached for his cane, entrusting all of his weight onto it, whilst he stumbled to the kitchen. Frank's eyes met Edie standing out in the kitchen like a fire in the night. There was an unspoken agreement between them. He could always trust her to brighten his day. He felt an overwhelming sense of euphoria, like the vibrant colours of Times Square on New Year's Eve. Frank limped to the bench and tipped the coffee mix into the brewing dispenser of the mocha pot, watching as loud rushes of steam fought to escape from the body of the pot before it diminished to a murmur. As the mixture warmed over the stove, a zephyr dispersed through the aperture in the pot, carrying Frank back to the gentle breeze 
of Swanbourne Beach. The cool gusts of wind blowing against his frail body as he leapt out of the olive green Falcon XK, his eyes instantly locking onto the great span of ocean drifting off into the distance as if it lasted forever. He marvelled at the crashing waves, almost as if they were great beasts he was obliged to tame. Nowadays, he fought to enjoy the simple things in life, and living in the moment, oblivious of time and responsibility, this was him in his own world. The coffee rose to a crescendo, brewing in the pot, signifying its work was complete. Frank tipped the mixture into his favourite coffee mug, watching the black liquid swirl around the cup, its volume increasing every second he held the pot over. He poured the milk into the dark, black void of coffee, brightening it with the soft whites of the milk. Frank shuffled to the study, balancing the coffee mug whilst trying to find his footing, aided by his cane. He collapsed in his chair. His cane fell helplessly beside him. Frank reached for his typewriter, propping it up on the desk. It was the first thing he brought when he arrived in America, his own farewell present from Perth, a reminder of his past. He saw it as a piece of both worlds, reminding him of the simple Australian upbringing and now the more complex, fast-moving modern America. Frank struggled to keep up with the rapidly progressing world as if it was leaving him behind. He tended to divert back to his familiar traditional methods and we'll leave it there. Once again, look at the atmosphere that's built here by describing him simply making a coffee. Everything is done in really, really, really vivid detail, even through the use of things like similes, the use of commas and clauses as well, and we can picture what is happening in front of us as we read it. The other thing in this sample piece is the use of a flashback, as Frank thinks back to his life in Perth. Notice how it's a feeling in Frank. It's feeling this wind. As he feels that, he thinks back to his life in Perth. That's a bit of advice I definitely give to you. Think about an action, a moment, or a feeling that allows the, or the character that you've selected to think back to their past or a moment in their past. That'll allow you to do so really fluently. We're going to leave it there for the sample pieces. We're going to come back after our final break and discuss the written explanation that goes with your creative piece. We'll be right back on the Six Piece podcast after this.
So when it comes to your written explanation, again, the main purpose of this is to justify your writing or your written piece in terms of the content and also the style and the way that you have approached it. For me, I would use my opening paragraph to really provide an overview into the purpose or the intent. Why have you chosen this particular moment, this particular character, and this particular setting? Think also about what themes you've employed throughout your piece that link back to the golden age. And perhaps think about, again, not just the why you did it, but what compelled you to do it as well. Was it a quote? Was it a character? Was it a moment? Was it even just a sentence or a word? that pushed you or encouraged you to write this piece. Once you've done that, I think you can then go on to look at your actual style and the stylistic features and text features that you've used throughout your piece. So again, we're looking at things like sentence lengths, our short and long sentences. We're looking at our similes and our metaphors and just our imagery in general. Are there symbols or motifs that we've used throughout our piece? How have we used close third person? What part of the setting have we used as well? Or the context? The 1950s Perth. Are there any characters and themes you've drawn on? And I guess to an extent as well, what have you changed or adapted from the original text? With this, I strongly encourage you to provide quotations from not just your own writing, but also from the Golden Age text itself. And you might even want to do some comparison. So just as London uses similes like A, B, and C, I've also used similes such as A, B, and C. Um, Again, your similes are going to be different. I shouldn't say that. Your similes will be, you know, D, E, and F. But think about how they relate to each other and what is the purpose of using those similes? What does it provide for the reader? Again, this is worth 25% of your mark. So make sure you are justifying Um, the reasons why you selected this particular piece and the approach and the way that you've gone about writing it. Before I go, just some general pieces of feedback when it comes to the creative sack. The first one is you should be really focusing on this piece over an extended period of time and making minute changes here and there. Make sure you're proofreading it as much as you can and looking for areas where you might need to expand, but also maybe moments that you might need to condense. If it's too plot heavy, maybe select one moment throughout your piece. If there's nothing really happens, perhaps you might want to expand on a particular moment and make it worthwhile. Think about ensuring again that your reading, or your response, sorry, sounds like London's. And that might be doing something like reading bits and pieces of the Golden Age, and then reading bits and pieces of your own to make sure you're able to maintain the fluency which she uses. Finally, take on board any feedback you receive from your teachers or from even your peers as well. And that'll ensure, because again, you're going to be stuck in this world of your own piece. Um, It's often um, good to get some feedback from someone who's not um, as ensconced in your writing as you are. And finally, be creative and have fun. This is one of those rare sacks where you actually get a bit of choice. It's really only this in your oral presentation where you get a say in what you get to write on. 
there's no prompts or topics which or articles which are selected by VCAR or your teachers. This is your chance to be creative. So if there's a character, if there's a moment that you really like, that really takes your fancy, write about it and keep developing it, workshop it and proofread of course. That brings it into today's podcast. Uh, we're going to be back pretty soon looking at the analyzing argument section of English. It's without doubt my favorite part of the English course. Obviously, um, being a journalist, it does help significantly, but it really is my favorite section because we can delve into some societal issues that we often don't get a chance to do at school. There is some material already from last year's podcast, some of the very first podcasts I did were on analyzing argument, but I'll be creating a bit more up-to-date content for you over the next few weeks, looking at how to go about writing our analytical responses, how to analyze arguments, and how to analyze language, of course, as well, and looking at some sample articles and writing pieces and responses to those. But until then, I've been Jim Session. This has been the Six Piece Podcast, reminding you, as always, that proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. I need just a minute, just a minute or two. Am I in an ocean, with you? I seem to be spinning in and out of in motion rolling into my life Meet me at the place where we can be our own creators Write a new chapter doesn't need to be clean Releasing our minds from the cynical invaders Which way do I ride With all be wrong, should I be asking myself while I'm high, why does this only last for so long, could I be wrong, should I be asking myself while I'm high. i